Welcome to the Art and Science of Success. I'm your host, Jonathan Brown. Now this 12-part podcast series has been created to help you make the most of the recovery opportunities, however long they last. In the last 12 years, I've worked with some of the world's top leaders, companies and teams to help them create success in highly challenging situations. And in that time, I've got to know some of the world's top practitioners and researchers into the toughest situations we can face. As we work to rebuild our businesses and even our communities, I wanted to offer some free resources and insights that I know help leaders because we use them every day helping our clients to deliver amazing results. So we ask them, what insights and ideas do you have that leaders can apply to help them survive and thrive whatever happens in the next few months or even the next few years? We have to find ways of inspiring our people to become even better. And if there was ever a time for you to do truly great work, to truly be your best more often, it's today. So I hope these podcasts will help you in some small way to create even more success for you and for those you care about. Today's guest is John Butler, an 84-year-old YouTube sensation. John had his first book published in the 60s, but only really came to people's attention after a YouTube interview went viral. We explore his life and how he found success as he defined it. Now, John was one of the first organic farmers in the 1960s and was friends with people like E.F. Schumacher, author of Small is Beautiful. He's also half Russian and spent time there his mum escaped Russia after the original Russian Revolution, so he's led an amazing and unique life following his own tune. So John is an amazing guy, and whilst he's a devout Christian, his advice on meditation and remaining calm and connected to stillness in challenging situations works at all levels, both spiritual and secular. And his ideas would resonate equally, I think, with philosophical idealists such as Bernardo Kastrup and Christian theologians such as Meister Eckhart, or just a regular YouTube listener. Harmonious relationships are at the heart of everything John has done in his life, and he demonstrates this in the way he interacts with others. So interviewing him and spending time with him was a real highlight. I spent most of the day with him recording content for the ethical publisher Shepard Walwyn. The first was an interview about his book, and that was in the church in Bakewell, Derbyshire. And this one was in his first church, which he described as a hillside overlooking Bakewell. Now there is some background noise in this interview, so apologies in advance, but without further ado, let's get into the conversation. We just had a, a wonderful chat in the, in the church down in Bakewell, and we're now in this utterly beautiful space. I just wonder if you can tell us um, where it is, but also more importantly, what it is to you. Well, it's really uh, from the church, you just look across the valley and there you see woods on the hillside and, and just beyond the horizon and, and this you come to this, this wonderful open space. And I first came up here as a boy of 12, I think, soon after we moved to Bakewell. And uh, I think it was up here that I really first fell in love with Space. It uh, it uh, it was all open heathland then. It hadn't been ploughed up and reseeded as it is now. There were no fences, and um, there were lots of curlews and lapwings. And uh, oh, what a lovely place it was. And throughout my boyhood, in fact, ever since I've been coming up here and always feeling better. Um, coming up from rather tense family situations, uh, 
usually on my own, is I discovered the great comfort of silence and space. I've always loved those qualities. It's never been difficult for me. I always feel it's my real home. And when I started thinking more in spiritual terms, I always felt this was my first church, really, up here. I was never too happy in a sort of social atmosphere of a, of a church services. I always felt closer to... I didn't really think in terms of meanings of things then. It was just a sort of natural boyish instinct, I suppose, to come up here. And here I am now as an old man, still doing the same thing. And I guess when you're when you're a boy, then this is an escape, right? And it's a space that isn't controlled by parents or. Well, I suppose it. Yes, I suppose it was a escape. Then I didn't I suppose I thought of it like that. But um, of course, much later on, I came to see that there are really two great aspects to creation. There's the man-dominated creation <laughs> and what you'd call the, well, the man-dominated or the unnatural creation <laughs> and the natural creation <laughs> where man is absent. And uh, I spent much of my life, because uh, later on I, I traveled much. I've been in many of the, of the wild, open and wonderful places of the world and, and always uh, always loved that instinctively. I look at a map and I look where there are no roads and no towns. I think that's the place to go. And, uh, and, and uh, yes, always seeking the natural in contrast to the unnatural. And I, I mean, in the in the book, you when I when I read the the passage about Africa, yes. you um you basically went to Africa and went where people weren't. That's right. Yes, I've always um, done that. And there's some there's some amazing. Um, let me see if I can find it quickly. Um, you talk about um, seeing an animal and learning about freedom from the animals. Mm -hmm. I know we're moving around a little bit, aren't we? But um, Africa. The freedom of these creatures helps restore one's own. Something disturbs them and they run, first a few, then all together, dust and hooves in perfect harmony. And this is, this is an example, just the next passage in Glimpses of Africa, chapter 11. It lightens as I drive, revealing dunes unearthly beautiful, each form so clear in shades of orange sand, mountains of sand continuing in line, in wave on wave, Huge dunes, far greater than anything I've ever seen before. Words fail, but I think of desert prophets who first wrote of God, inspired by similar scenes. Majesty, power, glory, might, and it's all here, so close to magnificence, it merges into God. It's not belief, but fact. Yes, that's right. It is, it's... it's... I've never been too keen on belief and people saying you have to believe in God. That's never seemed very real to me. I've always thought of it as fact, as obvious, really. Africa was a wonderful uh, opportunity to to uh, to really be close to what I'm talking about. 
absence of man and the, the pure. As it was in the beginning, I remember, I, I, I thought this was how it, it was when God first, crea first made the creation and looked and saw that it was good. It hadn't somehow been corrupted by this influence of man. I think that's part of the magic of wild animals. When you see really wild animals in their wild setting, um, somehow you draw near to fairy land. You, they, all these fairies, angels, purity, it all begins to make sense. They, it, they come together and you, and you understand, you suddenly realize this is, this is what it is. This is what it is. And why, why can't we be like this? Why are we so condemned to live in exile from this? And, and this led me to, to think ever more seriously of, of, of what it is that's wrong with man. Just walking up here just now, as well, feet trod on the grass, I remember one of my the first great lessons when I was a farmer. Dad bought a few fields of grass uh, when I uh, came back from Australia when I was 21. And uh, so I had these, my first fields. I was so proud of them. I just, you know, I was like a dog with two tails. And, uh, and then I, I realized that I couldn't walk across this grass that I loved so much with my big, because uh, they were hobnailed boots in those days we wore, without hurting the grass. What a lesson that was. I couldn't walk across the grass without hurting it, without bruising it. So here was I loving the grass, almost worshipping the grass, yet destroying it with every step, just as we did walking up here, just from the pathway. Of course, most people walk on grass, you don't think about it. They don't understand what you're doing because we're so blinded. You know, we're present, but we're not present. We're absent, so we, we're insensitive to these things. And, um, and sometimes your understanding is open and you do feel it. And you then feel the, the really dreadful enormity of what I now realize the scripture calls sin. Sin is that which has absented us, us from, from spirit, which is God. You know, the fairies can dance over the flowers, over and sit on the flowers and don't hurt them, do they? they? They don't damage the grass. So why do we? Why can't we be like the fairies? But of course, in our true nature, our true spiritual nature, we are. In true spiritual nature, I can dance over these lovely pastures and not disturb anything. And here I am in my corrupt human nature, fallen, as it's described, fallen from paradise, and I can't take a step without hurting something. So that really led me on to think seriously about the human condition and what can we do about it. And that's, I suppose, been my life's work, trying to come back to spirit, rediscover and find a way back to being a spirit. And, you know, and going right back to the beginning then, because um, one thing I wanted to, to ask you about was you write in the book about how your mum said that you always knew 
you were going to be a farmer. Yes. From before you were born. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Yes, this also was a, a wonderful thing for me to realize that, yes, of course, I, at first I was a farmer in the physical world. I was a young, strong man working with my hands with the soil, with forks and spades and things, um, digging the ground, growing vegetables, keeping sheep particularly. And, and, uh, and then I began to write a bit and um, people came and I'd, most people laughed at me, of course, at that time, but a few people were interested and encouraged me to talk and gradually I was able to formulate my ideas. And uh, so I sort of expanded from physical into, I suppose, mental. And then life moved on and uh, I began to look beyond my own few acres over the fence to look to my neighbours and, and think wider and wider. And so my farm sort of expanded, but the same sense of, of uh, there was a phrase came into use then, I knew the chap had invented it, a man called Schumacher, the tender loving care, TLC, which I think summed up absolutely beautifully the whole sort of ethos of what was then began to be called organic farming, tender loving care. And this TLC, at least in my case, began to expand beyond the, the farm to the whole sort of human situation to the whole world, really. And so it's with exactly the same attitude that farming for me simply expanded from growing a few vegetables on my own few acres to this spiritual work, which is raising the consciousness of on a universal scale. You see, you if you think of it, you raise vegetables out of the earth, don't you? You help them to grow like that, and you encourage that growth by attending to the fertility of the ground. Well, the fertility of the ground is really the spirit of the ground. It's really the spiritual development of earth, which manifests as fertility. That's why the whole process of composting and encouraging the, 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 the micro life of the soil, the worms, the bacteria, all the little bugs, they all help to build fertility which produce healthy crops. I can't talk forever about this. I'm sorry, I'll go on and on. But you see, in exactly the same way, our own spiritual development helps raise the consciousness of the world in which we live. And this is the great work. In this fallen world that has fallen from paradise, restoring it to God. And this is, of course, we come on to the great work of prayer. Mm. And, and it's the, so the, the farmers, because the thing that, that really interested me was, that, did you, as, a, as, a, as an infant, did you tell your mum that you came here to be a farmer? Absolutely, I did. It was a funny thing, yes. Mum always said that, uh, I, I think I once said to her, I knew before I was born that I was going to be a farmer. How did I know that? Where did that come from? talking there about your soul's journey then, that this was the... I don't know what I'm talking about with what I said. Yeah. There are, there are stories of, of children who, who remember either, you know, past lives, but also remember that... No, I don't remember past lives. No, but but also I remember that, you know, they said, well, I've come here for this. And that they're, they're, I don't know, you know, I don't know anything whether it's true or 
or not, but the idea that you came in here to be a farmer and, and you had the, was it Farmer Jones you had the, right, the first yes. experience with? Yes. And that you, and it wasn't, it was a confirmation that when you, when you read that in the book, it really is, it's a, yeah, yeah, that's it. That was, yeah, <laughs> so, and it's like, so you knew and then you experienced and you, you know, you got this wonderful, wonderful description of this little boy walking home exhausted, having done a man's, a man's day's labor, following the horse and um, just a stunning, a stunning bit of literature, really. Um, and, that, and then you became a farmer. Yes, yes, that's right. Gosh, how, how lovely that you remember that, Jonathan. That does touch me. Yes, it is one of my first memories of so spending a day uh, with a couple of horses and a seed drill. Yes, I'm walking up and down behind with the farmer. Just feet trotting, treading the ground, eight horses' feet and four men's feet. And something entered into my soul. There's no greater experience than to spend all day walking up and down a field behind a pair of horses. I still think that to this day. I'd willingly swap all the glories of this world for that. <laughs> do, do you know what? I was wondering about your mum and about what she was thinking, and, and it's like, do you know, he's saying that, that, you know, little John saying that crazy thing again. Right, what can we do? Tell you what, let's give him a day with the farmer, and so he can realise that he didn't want to be a farmer, and, this, and then you come back and it's like, yeah. I don't think, don't think it's given much to do with mummies. It was during the war and I was pretty much free to do what I wanted and uh, and I came and went. No, nobody thought of child abuse in those days. I don't think it existed. <laughs> I wandered wherever I wanted as a child and uh, nobody ever did me any harm. The men were, everybody I met was kind. I knew nothing but kindness as a child. And uh, this dear farmer who was always kind to me let me play and among the things I loved. It was just to just to be quiet, which you didn't have any trouble with. No, I was always well, what was there to talk about? I, I didn't know, there was no need to talk. I just was happy with the animals and the, the plants, the fields. You know, I never talked very much. I was on my own. Never lonely. I just I remember it as a very happy childhood. Especially when uh, I was allowed, uh, when I had anything to do with the, with the lovely big cart horses on the farm, darling creatures. Hard to realize how much love we've lost when you think how nearly everybody who worked with horses loved them. You can't really not love those great, patient, lovely animals, did all the work before motor cars engines did everything. <laughs> there was a, I remember there's a, there's a really very sad and poignant story of you when you were in, I think it was Peru, was it, when you, when you came across a horse that was, oh, yes. was really badly injured. Yes, yes. Um, and I, I'm, well, I'm, just, I'm just thinking of, of the lessons of being a farmer yes. and what we can draw from that. I think there's so, much, there's so much in the books and also in, I mean, in your other work, in, um, in um, Mystic Apprentice and, mm. and Mystic Beginnings. I know you go into a lot more detail about mm. about farming. I wondered if it would be helpful if we did if we just jumped over to South America and your experiences there and the the frustration you seem to feel about um, about helping others or making a difference. And 
Yes, that was an important time. Um, I'd injured my back uh, when I was 21, and I was um, told I'd have to give up farming, which broke my heart at the time, but I didn't, of course, I kept, I kept going. But um, it, it did me, I, had, I spent a few years in the family firm in, in Sheffield, but I really uh, I didn't really, I wasn't happy there, and I'd look out of the window and long to be outside, and um, it was the time when the world was beginning to take notice of what was then called the Third World, and there were, Oxfam began about then, and there were pictures of little hungry kids in the papers, adverts. So I determined to go off to South America and help to make the world a better place. I was full of confidence. I felt I knew how to, well, I was actually going to uh, Bolivia to take, they were giving away a thousand hectares of, of, uh, of, of, uh, of jungle, a virgin jungle to any settler who'd go and, uh, and, and uh, clear the land and, and grow crops. I was going to do that. But, um, but uh, I met a Peruvian girl, so I ended up in Peru. <laughs> and um, uh, yes, I got involved with um, uh, the, the, the Andes are largely eroded there, you know, and I knew a bit about soil erosion. I had seen it in Australia. And so I, I got involved with planting trees from the Andes to try to control erosion. and. Uh, well, I had some small success, but not very much. And one day I was sitting on a mountainside, and, and I seemed to hear a voice which said, to make whole, be whole. And I saw myself as a rather immature young man with a lot of superficial knowledge, trying to help, in inverted commas, the local Indians who were... Uh, many of them much older and wiser than I was. And I'd already, somebody sent me a book that mentioned meditation. And uh, I mean, something began to work in me. I began to think I'd better do something to sort myself out before sorting the world out. So when my time in Peru ended, I came back and I looked for and found a school of meditation. And that's when the great adventure of meditation started. I was 26 years old. So that was what South America taught me, really. But you know, when I was reading the passage about um, when in the, in, you were asked, you, there, was a, there was a man who, who came along and, and said he wanted to kill you when you arrived. Yes, yes, but yes. by the end of it, he wanted you to stay. But you yes. felt you were, it was time to move on. And, and yes. what it did seem like is that you had made, or you'd, you'd facilitated the difference. You'd, you'd, your, your presence had attracted others. <laughs> and so there was a lot going on, but it wasn't, it wasn't necessary for you to be there anymore. Well, who knows, uh, Jonathan? Who knows? Who knows what uh, seeds we sow? Yes, in a way, I seem to not achieve anything very much, but I think much happens behind the scenes that we're not aware of. Yes, it was. It wasn't when I first arrived already, but I'd moved to a new place, and there were one evening there were a lot of drunken Indians came and and knocked me up and uh, 
and uh, <laughs> said they wanted to kill me. Well, <laughs> I was big and strong in those days. I didn't have much choice, did I? <laughs> so I tensed my fists. And <laughs> anyway, we, we settled down and started to talk, and it, uh, they didn't kill me, but <laughs> I wouldn't say we became friends, but at least <laughs> we went our ways. <laughs> and uh, Yes. Yeah. Yes, often the great the great bullies of this life when they when they settle down and uh, <laughs> they often become the leaders, don't they? Yeah. I don't think I've ever met a bad person you know, in all my life. A lot of people, you know, appear sort of unpleasant on first acquaintance, but when you get to know them, there's good in everyone. Everyone. So, so you, you, you're back from South Africa, South America, and you you, you you move and you start meditating at the school of meditation. Mm -hmm. um, at what point did you get the and you had the farm in Bakewell? Yes. That time on the showground. Yes. Um, that must have been about the same time. Yes. Um, so when, when, at what point then did you move to Bicker Fen? Oh, no, um, no, I had the farm, then bought the first fields when I was 21, is that, oh, okay. uh, early before. Right. Anyway, um, yes, uh, well, it was a family affair, the things went wrong with the family business, and uh, and uh, we had to, the family finances, of course, were shaken, and, um, and so we had to sell the farm. But at that time, there was a, a little cottage with just three acres of land um, that, uh, that Dad's great aunt had lived in on the Lincolnshire Fens, and uh, of course uh, nobody thought of farming three acres. It was far too small. What can you do with that? But anyway, uh, at that time I was going through a bit of a hermit phase. I was disillusioned with the with the world, and um, was ready to just retreat to a sort of solitary hermitage and so I went to live there and much to my amazement um, just being well on that fertile soil you couldn't help just grow a few things and but I was going down to London to the school of meditation there regularly and one day I took a box of lettuce down and to my amazement, at the end of the evening, I left it downstairs in where people went and had a cup of tea. And the box was empty and there was a saucer full of coins. And I suddenly realized that there were people in the world who wanted produce grown as I wanted to grow it. Of course, I was the only countryman in the school. Everybody else were townies, but uh, I'd talk at people interested and I'd talk about farming. And. Uh, so they knew the way I thought about things. So I thought, well, good God, I could make, I could grow vegetables, couldn't I? So I started growing vegetables. Talk about not being unexpected, and so people started labeling me as one of the first organic farmers. <laughs> well, I don't know about organic, I just thought of it as good farming, and uh, but I certainly loved the land. TLC, plenty of that. <laughs> mm. So, and so your approach then was was really just this awareness that that that, that man does, man damages. 
Yes. So it's got a lot of it's got destructive power. Yes. And then we're often we're often we often ignore that yeah. and pretend that it doesn't happen. Yes. But then you got into the the restoration or the creation of of what was what sounded and you know looking at the video as well that you've got on the on the website and um, and reading the other work and in 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 wonders as well is just what a beautiful how beautiful you made that. Well, I think that that sort of came out of secondary effects, I think. <coughs> I just love the earth. I really do. I love earth. Do you know, if you take a handful of earth and really look at it, you'll find it's one of the most beautiful things. You can... There's no end to the wonder of earth. And, and once, you know, even with your eyes, you can see this myriad of little creatures that uh, that uh, create what's called a crumb structure. I remember once talking about the wonders of the, of the structures of the earth to, to a very wise old lady. Lady Eve Balfour was one of the founders of the Soil Association. She, she said, yes, it's like a cathedral, isn't it? All turrets and passages and, and ups and downs. It's like a cathedral and we should treat it as such. That's exactly right. And, uh, and every little bacteria and bug you see that lives in the earth is, is a living creature. And, and if you put a great big clumsy foot on the, on the earth, let alone a tractor or some heavy machine, you crush it, don't you? Mm. So it's like, running a, it's like running a bulldozer over a cathedral. That's what we're doing to the earth. And this compaction of the soil, it squeezes the life out of the soil. It not only kills the little creatures, but it crushes the, the ventilation, all the, the, it's like closing all the windows. You're crushing the roads. You're breaking all the, the structure of, uh, 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 that enables life to, to take place. Um, and, it, and it's absolutely, Un almost unbelievable, the more you come to realize the destruction of man, how we can't really function without destroying. And, uh, and this led me ever more deeply to consider what is man? What, how do we get out of this mess? What's the answer? Um, how can I learn to farm without destroying? Well, of course, we can't really, because um, we are in this physical body. Um, you know, I can't, cut, I can't eat a lettuce without killing it, can I? Everything I eat, I'm, I'm killing. If I eat a potato, I'm killing it, let alone anything that comes from animals. So, here you come to understand that man is a sinner as until it became politically unacceptable <laughs> you know in modern factions you know people have realized much I think much better that, that that man is absent from his true estate which is in spirit and I suppose this led me on from physical farming to spiritual farming which is really prayer that's exactly what prayer is. Prayer is farming in spirit.
I, I promise we'll get we'll get we're going to get back to that. And that that that's part two of the book. I just want to hold your feet over the fire of this of the farming thing because there's something. It was actually I think it's actually your wife told the story, and I've labelled it somewhere. And I'm not I've not actually. Let me just find exactly what the story is. It was a story that your wife told about. I think it was the chicks. Um. Ah oh, yes, yes I do. Okay, so here it is, from the Parish Magazine in September '74. This is the item for the for the. You know, so so so, and the question is: so if we're a sinner, if we're we're sinners, then okay. So what can we do, right? And and if we're and if it's like, well, you know, God plonks us on earth. Yo, you're a bunch of sinners. And it's like, okay, so now what? So what now do I do? Is there any redemption on earth? And here this is. Said at the beginning of August, one of our hens hatched twelve chicks from twelve eggs. She brooded in the hen house, and in a day or two was ready to bring her family into the field. This meant walking down a ladder. I went to help and found two chicks still in the house. Inside the house, I picked one up and put it on the ladder, and off it went. The last one was upset, and when put on the ladder, bounced back against my hand, wanting to come back into the house. I felt his tiny will pitted against mine, and wondered what to do next. Then he heard the voice of his mother, gently and steadily calling. I felt the tension leave his body. He followed the call, ran down the ladder, and joined the family. When he followed his mother's voice, the chick's battle with me was over. His will, her will, and my will were united in one will. And then she says, "This is just so beautiful." It says, "Perhaps our battles with husband, child, or neighbour can be dissolved by memory of our true direction towards truth, which is what we really seek." We may say, but how and where can I hear the voice of God? Well, isn't it singing all around us, all the time, waiting for us to listen, hear, and follow, even if the way seems new and strange? Oh, she was a smasher, my, my first wife. She, she understood these things and worked very well together on the farm. Yes. And, and there was a moment in the film. Um, where you look at you, you, you both you, you share a prayer and you, you say the prayer together, and then you look to each other, yes. and there's the look of such purpose and love in that in the in in that film and in the in the look in your face, and I just I really got the sense that you were doing God's work. The school where I learnt meditation used to call it the third point, you see, because so often we live in this world of right or wrong or this or that. You and me, this is relationship, you and me. But actually, if we just are silent, we just listen to the silence, just watch the way the grass is moving in the wind. And, it, and so if you were, and I got, I really got the sense, and I think in the writing you can get it as well, um, <coughs> that you were doing, you were, I mean, the land was already beautiful, right? Because it's Lincolnshire Fen. Yes. And 
you, you, you've made it when you, you can see the journey that you that you had and and the difference that that you made by by being so very patient and and humble and literally getting onto your knees um, and doing the work and and honoring the, honoring all creatures um, and and seeing what their will was and and at times shaping it but also just and and you were saying about how it's important is to listen so you said that you listen to the plans and they tell you what to do. Well, I hope it doesn't sound too silly, but... But yes, just be aware of them. I mean, uh... look, when I just lower my eyes, look, there's a, there's a seeding dock just in front of me, just nodding in the wind. Well, I'm not doing anything to it, but but I love it. I'm just looking at it, and in that look, there's love and almost worship, isn't there? It's it's almost unbelievably beautiful. If you just look at anything, it is, isn't it? Whatever we look at is beautiful. If you if you look at it, if you even just hold up a pencil or something, or look at my fingernail, it's absolutely miraculous, isn't it? Could ever have dreamed anything so wonderful as a as a hand could exist. This dear old hand of mine for eighty-four years has done things and I've hardly noticed it. Talk about a good servant. And this grass. Honestly, we live in a world of we really saw what's in front of us, you know, I think we just burst because it's too wonderful mm. for us to contain. You look, you look like you were going to burst on the farm. In that, in that film, there were moments when you just, you were just overflowing and, and yet also, I mean, Shirley said how you were, you know, you, and you were saying you could be a bit brutish you were, when she arrived. Mm. You were, you've been, you've been five, five years on your Todd. <laughs> <laughs> growing vegetables <laughs> and you could you found it difficult to speak <laughs> yes i've never have found it very, you think i'm gambling away now but but actually i'm much more naturally oh. silent i think you know what i was thinking do you know john never talked he doesn't really talk about angels and given that he's so you know he has such experience and i'm thinking well buddy shirley putting up with that <laughs> Putting up with it. Oh, Shirley. You know, she was, you were were there tending to the flocks and she was there tending to you, wasn't she? Drawing you back out of yourself. (laughs) Just wondrous. Just absolutely (laughs) wonderful. And 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 there's a story now that's that's quite famous around you now, which is the story of of Piglet, of of how you had a a, a pig for a pet. It was an orphan piglet, and then you you raised him on his own, and then and then you killed him, yes. and then you ate him. Yes. Yeah. Well, what else can you do with a pig when it gets? When it gets <laughs> pigs get bigger. This is what happens with a pig. It starts off with a little cuddly piglet, but you've got to feed it, haven't you? Well, and the more food you put into it, the bigger it gets, and eventually it's so big it takes over the whole place. But, do you know, I've got a friend who's running that experiment right now. Her husband bought her what was called at the time a micro pig. I don't know if you've heard of that. No. So, well, and that's because they don't exist, right? Uh-huh. What it was was a baby 
pig. Yes. So someone had some clever marketing idea. It's like, I want to sell some piglets. So he described them as micro pigs. And they said, oh, no, they just grow to be the size of a dog. And they don't, they didn't at all. They grew to be not, they were normal pigs. And so, and so this pig kept growing and they've had to move house. <laughs> and it got to the stage one point where the pig became territorial because they're super smart animals, right? Yeah. Rachel came home one day and she said, I think we've been burgled. And because um, the house has all this been wrecked. And um, and when they played back the video on the on the security cameras, the pig had managed to work out how to use a door and managed to make his way around the house. And, and also it became really rather possessive of, of her. So wouldn't let him, wouldn't let the husband in the house. And so they had to, to move the house. And now they live next door to a field where the pig is basking in this, in this piggy glory. That they can't bring themselves to, to eat it. But the, the thing that I really took from that was how it was the, was the love. And he said that, and he said, pig and I had loved each other in life and death. Yeah. And at least I felt the bond continued. It was an important lesson. Somehow it seemed to me my piglet never died because yeah. you, you actually the love is and you said he said the, the the love with which we work is not lost but recycled yes, exactly. and the value of the food we eat is most certainly connected with the quality of man and conditions which produce it absolutely amen to that it's amazing that i wrote that i wrote that when i was how old was i maybe 30 long time ago this is amazing isn't it what i knew he's absolutely right yes i i, I took my, this was dead serious um, this was a huge lesson for me, and I ate that whole pig, you know, it was a big pig, you know, a, a pig's about 90% fat, uh, but that was how, what everybody ate in the old days, fat, bacon, salted, and it kept, we hung it from the cellar in the house, and it took me three and a half years to eat that pig. I ate every morsel of it. And uh, of course, at the end, it was all festooned with green mold, but only on the outside, inside. But it did begin to get a bit strong. But anyway, I, I ate it. Do me any harm. <laughs> and honestly, who would want to go out and buy meat after that? Because it's absolutely true that that, that love with which I love, we. Well, I think the pig loved me. We both loved each other. And, uh, and, and that came back to me. I ate that meat with reverence. Yeah. And, and, of course, that led me on to realise that the vegetables that I was growing then, if I put love into my work, that love becomes part of the vegetable, therefore part of the nourishment. Therefore, I'm nourishing the consumer in that way. And isn't honestly... If, if you eat a, a, like a birthday cake cooked by your mother with loving care, isn't that different from just going out and buying a cake in the supermarket? Oh, 100%. Of course it is. Yeah. Everybody knows that. Well, so it is with farming. Yeah. Every potato we ate was grown with TLC. Every grain of wheat was grown in that way. Think how the whole society would be nourished. Isn't this the full real work of a farmer to to first of all cultivate this spiritual um, awareness in itself and put that into its work, hence it, it, it flows out. Yes. You see, this is really what prayer is all about. Prayer is, is this raising of consciousness, this raising of, of, the, 
of the finer qualities of life. Oh, I just, and you know, and I, I just think, and when I'm, I was thinking, because when in the, you know, in the emails you're saying how you don't, you're not farming anymore and stuff. It's like, well, you just haven't stopped. You've just got, and I know in the, at the end of the book you talk about being a farmer to, to others, yeah. and I just think that so. The, the lessons that I take is working in working in business. The lesson I take, one of the biggest ones was, was if you is follow follow your love, because that you loved farming and and you loved animals and um, and also and be open because I think I think Shirley brought more animals to the farm, didn't she? Her her impact was well, too. because there were two of us, we could we could keep more. Brilliant, and and it's that, and so so find something that you love, but also that the, what you did to make. That how you wanted to work, mm. you made an economic. They made the economics fit around that to yeah. some extent. I know it was a. I know you could have been a lot richer with more acreage, farms, you know, machinery, chemicals, and stuff like that. But then it would have been. It would have impoverished you in a different way. So you found a way of making the economics work for you. You know, dear, I. Uh, yes, and I suppose I don't know. I suppose. Economics had been invented a long time ago, but 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 of course uh, this economics, like science, or these things are quite new phenomena. Really, um, farming used to be a way of life. Nobody thought of it as a business, and then it became gradually more and more of a business. And then science came along and became agro-business, and and economics came in, and people started costing everything, and, and all this seemed ever more alien to me. And the opposite to, to to my better instincts, and uh, I had a very good father. Really, in some ways, he was very strict. I was a bit frightened of him, really, but he was an artist, and uh, he had a good understanding. I remember once I, I I'm talking to him and worried that I couldn't make farming pay. And forgive me for saying this, because I'm going to swear, but uh, he said, "Bugger the money." <laughs> <laughs> bless his heart. Yeah. I think that was the one. The, I, I, I'll always bless him for saying that to me. <laughs> Bugger the money. <laughs> and uh, I couldn't think of a better principle to live by. Follow your heart. Follow your heart, my dears. Well, do you know, and I, and I just think the way that, that you and Shirley treated treated weeds. Yes. Right, so if, if managers and leaders treated their people the way that you and Shirley treated weeds, we would not have trouble in the workplace. No, of course Because we there was love in everything you did. And, and, and going back to the, you know, if, 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 uh, if you're going to eat lettuce, or, then honour the lettuce. Grow it, grow it beautifully, grow it caringly, and honour the lettuce as you eat it because the sacrifice is willing from what I took from, from your writings. Is that they're, they're happy for that, for that sacrifice. Just honour it. Well, it's not much use asking him. Expecting our leaders, you see, it's, it's got to start with me. It all starts with me. I am the first of sinners. I am the one at fault. So start clearing up our own act, my own act. And then you see when, as he says in the good book, to the pure, all things are pure, you see. And the more light you have in your own life, less darkness you see it's as simple as that mm. when you really see clearly there is no more darkness sure the darkness ceases to exist just like the sun sees no shadow so it all starts with me it's to see beauty is in the eye of the beholder 
So is uh, evil. But, you know, what, so when you talk about being a sinner, I can look at how people talk about being a consumer mm. as the same thing, because all you do is, is take. And I know what you were talking about. You talk about natural law in the, in the book, about, about, about first give. If you want, if you want to produce first give and the way that you That's gave right. to the soil and, and nurtured the soil. Right. And, and the other key principle is that you acted in a way that made next year better. That next year's harvest was going to be better because you, you honoured the soil this year and you cared for it in a way that, that restored the soil and, and kept, right. it, kept it strong. I'm just wondering what your take is of, of as, as, the, as we are as sinners, is what do you, what do you take of, of us being made in God's image? What's your understanding of that? You know, these answers to these questions are always, I find, best answered by right here and now. We're just talking and are still. Here's the silence. And just to be silent. We could feel our autumn sitting on this bench. The bench is rather hard, and I'm beginning to feel the bones of my bottom getting a bit uncomfortable. My feet are on the ground. And up to now, my tongue's been rattling away. Now it's become quiet. This silence has moved into first place, hasn't it? So it's become the most apparent. You can't call it a thing, can you? But it's become obvious. Somehow the performance has merged into the scenery, as it were. First of all, this lovely grass, sunshine behind us. Expanding into the silence, space. The spirit. Now, what am I? Am I this body visiting around on this hard bench? This voice? Haven't I merged into this infinite spirit? I left the body behind. Forgotten about it almost. I just expanded into this infinite spirit. Here are you and I sitting on this bench talking as two men. But actually, how many spirits are there? You got one, me another? Fly buzzing around on the camera? Was there just one spirit containing us all? One infinite silence, infinite presence, infinite spirit. So, what are we? What is man? Are we not this spirit? This one spirit? That incidentally can move around without crushing the grass. Isn't this what we are? 
this is this doesn't die, does it? It doesn't change. And it's forever with us. I am with you always. It's long before we we fell into I am John and you are Jonathan. Two separate men, two separate lives. We are one, one spirit. Your time or space, without age or difference, in the image of God. Remember, Adam in the Garden of Eden was singular, just one, wasn't he? One. Before she, he fell into tension. And so, because he fell from immortality, fell into mortality, and infected the whole world with his disease. That's why everything in this world dies. Should the real world time that you that you had at Bickerfen. God was present because love was present. Well, <laughs> you see, again, we need to be careful with these words because whatever we mean by God, and who knows what it means when we talk about God. We talk about it like something in a supermarket, don't we? But you see, if we think of it in terms of the infinite, we're on fairly safe ground because the infinite is always beyond anything. You see, how do you? You can't. You know, you can't parcel the sky into a packet and send it, can you? It may have been attempted, but currently no. So how could you? Um, I forget what you said just the other just a moment ago, Jonathan. So something. about 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 so love was you said about in yes. God's love and on Bicker Fen, the way that you and Shirley behaved with everything, with every creature, is that you you honoured the we, you honoured all of them, and so and so in that sense, so the love was present, and and you had the godlike power of 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 life and death. Well, dear, let's just say we tried, <laughs> and and sort of and tentatively approached and picked up crumbs from the table. Got it. That's yes. about the scale of yeah. it, you see. Yeah. We talk so arrogantly, really, about about uh, about the love of God and what we could do with it, you know, as though we were in control. But um, 
But yes. really, all we do is scratch the surface of these things. So, so your efforts then were, 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 were sincere and loving efforts, and they came up short because you're not because you're not well, in this current manifestation. You, you, you aren't. You don't have. You're not God, but you are. You know, you're in. You're part of the infinite, but only in those moments when you, when you join back in here, back on Earth. Then it's always going to. It's always going to end in failure. That's right. Yes, that, that's correct. We, always, we never really fully measure up. We can't do some the limited nature. You see. Just look at my body. You see, you look at me. I have to hobble around on two sticks these days. You know, the, the body fails. Obvious, doesn't it? It's, it's got a limited elsewhere. My brain can only grasp you know, a tiny little yeah. proportion of what's, of what's there. It's an understanding of beauty of anything. It's just childish to say the least, isn't it? We are, we are children, spiritual children, all of us. And the, the, the more experience I have of these great things, the, the more I understand. I feel like a beginner, a mere child, understanding. I think that, you know, from, from my point of view, as a... <clears throat> approaching a 50-year-old man, then I've taken a great deal from your example um, of, your, of your trials and failures um, as how does a man behave or how can a man behave and what are the responsibilities? I'm not talking about a man or a woman. I'm talking about, you know, I'm talking about both. But from my point of view is what, is what is right action or the closest to right action that I can get <clears throat> and what consideration do I give to others and creating how can I create harmony <clears throat> How can I create harmony in my environment so that everybody, as many as all beings, can prosper as much as it is humanly possible for me? Well, I have a fairly simple approach to this. <clears throat> Do you need a drink? Are you okay? Oh, sorry. My granddad used to say to me as an idealistic little boy, keep your foot feet on the ground, my boy, he'd say. It's the days of the dinosaurs. Keep your feet on the ground because it immediately anchors you, first of all, to something that's still and steady, the Mother Earth. Even if it's a concrete floor, at least it's still in contrast to your crazy mind. So you've sort of taken the first step towards being quiet and at peace. Feet on the ground, then listen and look quite miraculously. This will take you through thinking. If you look funny with full attention, attention will bring your mind to stillness. And then you will begin to see. Just if you want to see, if you want to understand, the first thing is to look, isn't it? Mm. We don't look. Honestly, 
who's looking at what's in front of their noses. We're listening to our own silly voices all the time, aren't we talking about me? Mm. Just to listen. If you listen, particularly beyond the sounds, even in a, in a busy street, just listen beyond the traffic, you'll hear stillness. I promise you, if all the bombs in the world were going off, you could be in perfect stillness, perfect peace, completely undisturbed. Completely untouched. Untouched by the virus, by violence, by unpleasantness. Just interesting. Yeah, present. What does God say to you? I'm with you. Trust in God. Yeah, I'm with you. Don't be afraid. That's all we have to do. Just be present. Feet on the ground. That's a key part of its recreation, right? This cable stretching across here. How magical, magic beauty is it? So immediately you'll, you treat everything with the respect, with reverence, with care, with TLC. You can't do anything else, can you? Mm. Look, I look at you. A few hours ago, I would never heard of you, didn't know who you are. But naturally, we love each other. You can't do anything else. Look at anything is to love it. Mm. How could we hurt a hair of each other's heads? No. It doesn't exist, does it? To see somebody. It's just, I think we've forgotten and we've stopped looking at people, haven't we? And seeing. That people are anything. Yeah. We just don't see. We are absent from the presence of God. It is the whole human condition. Lost in our thoughts. Lost sheep, just as Jesus tells us. To the cord, come back. Oh. So I want us to move into the, the second part of your book, um, which is the extraordinary. It's actually the I mean it's actually the better part of the book, right? I mean it's it's truly the first part is great, the second part is is the realization. But before we do that, I just want to touch on on Russia, because I don't feel that we can understand you without without understanding what Russia meant to you. <coughs> Russia, well, <coughs> there's a great big uh, fat book I called. First of all, I called the book Oh Russia. And then uh, there's most, of, there's most of all my other books actually are. Start, start, start off with the title Mystic, something or other. Change the name to Mystic Forbearance. Because this is a wonderful, rather old fashioned word, forbearance. And if any country in the world has been through the, the trials of this life, it's, it's Russia. My mother was Russian, went through the trials of the revolution 
then the dreadful civil war that followed was destroyed not only our family, but not a family in Russia went unscathed. Mum was sent to England a little away from the refugee, as a teenage girl, spoke no English, and had to find her own way. Mum eventually produced me. sense of belonging here right? as a 12 year old boy yes. this is where you felt belong but you were, it was you and nature yes so was that the first time when you really felt at home with other people i think it probably was yes well wow. yes. in fact not probably yes yes it was i 
I recently felt comfortable. Um, yes, he, he, among people in Russia, and of course Russia has the most wonderful nature. The country is so vast. That, uh, talk about space. It just goes on forever. So much as once you live there and you understand the geography of the climate of the place, Okay, it's a great story. I'm glad I wrote that book. And again, I never intended to write it, it was just a sequence of long letters. Right. But, uh, Well, no, it'd be hard anyone would would think of taking that on at 51 right <laughs> and then and then spend i mean it's, it's effectively that's 10 years of your life right from 51 yes, to early really. 60s yes but well i was desperate i, I was so uh, i was so desperate to find any any uh, reason to exist really it, i had awful depression thankfully russia pulled me out of that i got interested in it and forgot to be depressed Anybody knows about depression? Russians do. Poor dears, if you know what, if you know what they've been through, you're not surprised. My mother had many years of depression. Who, who wouldn't have been no. through what she went through? Yeah, and it, 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 it passes on in families, doesn't it? Well, so it seems, yes. But um, yeah, we've had that, and the, the trauma of the the, the, the the collective trauma that the nation's gone through. Um, but just, I just want to wrap this up, John, and then we can get into the second part of the book. Yes, but I, yes, I did say um, that I would, I would read out your, what you wrote on the back, on the bottom of your CV. And I've got friends who work in recruitment, and they're going to find it hilarious as I did. So, so this was your additional information, which people can sometimes say, I'm, you know, I'm a hard worker, or I can do Excel, or something like that. And you wrote, there is no category on earth where I feel I belong, no form that can hold me. Therefore, I think I seek expression for my freedom, because I, I feel this freedom, I can help others to freedom. My sights are cast not backwards into definition, but forwards to the infinite. Don't fence me in. I will not be contained, labelled, categorised. I am a free spirit bound only to love. I live only to love. I will do anything for love. Grant me a channel for my love, and I will give my all. Thank you, right. Not surprisingly, no one offered me a job. <laughs> I rather like that. I, I could write the same thing today. <laughs> yes. yes. I'm even a bit proud I wrote that once. <laughs> it's the nail on the head, doesn't it? But then, then you find yourself at the job centre and then next thing you know, you're in Nottingham that's doing right. a degree in, in Russian. Yes, that's right. Yes. And your life changes again. It does. Yeah. This has been the Art and Science of Success. I'm Jonathan Brown. If you want to learn more about the topics we've discussed today, be sure to visit alppartners.com where you'll find the show notes and other resources. And if you join our community there, you'll get access to even more battle-tested ideas to help you create success for yourself and your organisation. 
You can also arrange a free call to explore how we can help you accelerate learning and performance in your organization. If you enjoyed this show, be sure to subscribe. And if you have a minute, pop over to Apple Podcasts or Spotify to give us a positive rating. Thanks for listening.